0: So if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to have a special message this morning on what we call Small Group Sunday. So a little bit different than our normal Sunday. Typically, we're teaching through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. We just finished Ananias and Sapphira, how they died in the house of God in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll pick back up there next week in verse 12. But this morning, verses, uh, 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 11 through 18, I've entitled the sermon, what are you marked by? What are you marked by? 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18 together this morning. Here's what John the apostle writes. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Father, we do bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. We're praying that you would speak to us through your word, in such a way that would cause us to love like you've loved us, and that we would think through the one another's this morning as we want to practice the opportunity to live and thrive as a church together, that this passage would would help inform our thinking and help impact our actions, that we would be a more loving church, a more serving church, and that we would glorify Christ in the gospel in doing those things as we desire eternal life, given to us by Christ, would transform us into living this life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today, on Small Group Sunday, we always try to highlight an aspect of body life. What does it mean to be part of Christ's body? What does it mean to be part of a body of a church? I mean, we really want to be a church where everyone is involved in healthy relationships. We don't want to be a megachurch We don't want to be the best show in town. We want to be a faithful church to preach the word, proclaim his truth. And we want members, people who belong to Christ, to become a part of a local church where we can thrive together, where we can serve one another. And you can't do that if you just show up on Sunday morning from 930 to 11 o'clock. If you're a 930 to 11 o'clock church member, then this message is going to shame you okay? The idea is we want your involvement. We love you. We love you too much to let you stay in the shadows. We want to be a church that gets raw, a church that gets that gets vulnerable, a church that wants to breathe together the air that God's given us, and you just can't do it if you're only coming on Sunday morning. And so that's why we emphasize small groups, which is the opportunity As application of this sermon, for you to jump in a small group. We have about seven or eight of them offered throughout the valley at various times. And all the information is out there. It's on the website. It's also out there on those tables. And so, my goal for this sermon, I'll know I preached a good sermon, is is if I'm done, you guys all run out there and sign up for a small group. Now, if you go out that door, that's going to be bad news. (laughs) All right, we have people that are going to chase you down and turn you around and march you out this door. And I'm not trying to be legalistic about small groups either for the haters of small groups out there. Uh, we want you just to know it's a way, it's a way right? that you can really become part of the lifeblood of this church. You can do it outside of small groups as well. right? You can get together in informal context all throughout the week but at least small group gives a little structure and a little opportunity for you to get get involved with a leader, with an elder, with other men and women, other families that would participate in a small group setting. And so as we jump into this sermon this morning, those things that I have in mind, and I wanna ask the question this morning, and the question to you is this, what are you marked by? How do other people see you as a person? How does God see you? as one of his children? Uh, what, what would you say is one of your main characteristics of your life that rises to the top? In 1970, noted Christian apologist evangelist and author Francis Schaefer introduced his book entitled The Mark of the Christian, and here's what he writes in that book, quote, "...through the centuries men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians." They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats and hung chains about their necks and even had special haircuts, you know, the Christian haircut. (laughs) Of course, there is nothing wrong with any of this, Schaefer says, if one feels it is his calling. But there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is that mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus looks to the future of his death on the cross, the open tomb, and the ascension, and knowing that he is about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come, and it is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And then Schaefer quotes directly from John 13, 33 through 35, little children, John writes, yet a little while, or John's writing, Jesus is speaking, he says, little children, yet a little while, and I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so that you would love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what Christ has called us to. That's what he wants us to be like. And then Schaefer concludes in this extended quote I'm giving to you this morning. This passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or one locality, but in all times and in all places until Jesus returns. And so we can be reminded by this quote, by the verse that, that we read out of John 13 with Jesus saying, love one another. We need to know that the mark of Christianity is not about what you wear. Crosses around your neck, crosses on your lapel does not mean you're a Christian. You could have a fish on your bumper sticker. I had one growing up. I thought that was the coolest thing. Until I came out to the Master Seminary, people were like, hey dude, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. I'm like, I know, but I still like to advertise. <laughs> but we don't live in a culture like that out here so much. They're always talking against some of that stuff. But Christian t-shirts, I think they're still cool. Come on, Christian t-shirt, you have one, brother? All right, wear your Christian t-shirt next week. I even had the WWJD bracelet. Come on, who's with me? Who did the W? Typically, in our, in our culture, it's all shot, shot down. Like, that doesn't mean anything. And I get that. I get what people are saying. All kinds of paraphernalia uh, make, make somebody feel like they're more Christian if they wear it. or if, they, if it, you know, You're not a Christian based on what you wear. You're not a Christian based on what you say. You know, certain Christians have certain phrases. They always want to say, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I grew up in the South where it was, well, bless your heart. Bless your heart, brother, which I was told later when I got older, it typically means that you did something really stupid. (laughs) Somebody does something, you won't believe what happened, and they tell the story, something really stupid they did, and then you say, well, bless your heart, brother. Just bless you. You know, you have to be careful about what it is that you say, right? I mean, it's like we just want to make sure you understand Christianity is not a culture of clothes, and it's not a culture of colloquial sayings. The mark of Christianity is about, it's not about where you go or where you don't go. Uh, I've gone to church and Sunday school my whole life, you may say, so therefore I'm a Christian. Or you may say, well, I don't go to R-rated movies, so that right there proves that I'm a Christian, Or you may say, "Well, I've been to every baptism service, every small group meeting, every women's ministry, every men's ministry, every youth ministry event for my whole life. So that means I'm a Christian." You may be here this morning and say, "Well, I don't drink alcohol, so that shows I'm a Christian." You might be here this morning and said and say, "Well, I didn't get the vaccine." (laughs) Whoo, (laughs) whoo! Oh, it's getting hot in here already. So therefore, I'm a Christian. Be careful what you say, what you emphasize, because none of that has anything to do with you being marked as a Christian. What has to to do with you being marked as a Christian is what we're reading about this morning is that you would love one another. That's the mark that we're looking for. That's the mark that Christ gave. That's what ought to define us. That's who you are as a Christian. You've been loved by God so that you can now love one another. It ought to be your distinguishing mark. When people think about you, that's what they ought to think about. Not the fact that you homeschool. Not the fact that you voted Republican. Not the fact that you're going to get the governor recalled. Come on. (laughs) 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 Woo! That's next week's sermon. That's next week. We still got a week. (laughs) people. I'm just saying those things are not the marks. And I really don't care, you know, too much about about getting too political. I'm just saying. I'm just saying we have a responsibility to do what's right. And we have a, a responsibility to be a part of our culture. And we have a responsibility in light of this small group Sunday That we want to focus on this one another and we're going to do it from this passage as we're able to look at and compare two characters that rise to the top in this passage. And you may have seen it already, but it's the character of Cain. And it's the character of Christ. And 1 John compares these two in this passage in a way that you want to be like one, but you don't want to be like the other. And it's not really fair in some ways to compare these two, Cain and Christ. I mean, we're talking about comparing a mortal man with the infinite, immortal Christ, But the passage that we're looking at this morning does just that. In fact, John, the gospel and the the epistle here of 1 John, is contrasting love and hate as one of the topics to prove whether or not you are a true Christian. And So this morning, we're going to look at these two prototypes, these two forerunners who set forth for us as examples, two men, one marked by hate and the other one marked by Love. So two headings. The first one is this. Number one it's there in your notes on the PowerPoint as well. Cain was marked with hate. Cain was marked with hate. And our first blank, if you are taking notes, says this. Hate leads to the murder of others. Hate leads to the murder of others. And we're going to skip verse 11. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. We're going to go to verse 12 that says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Hate leads to the murder of others. We see that in verse 12. And then your next blank says, Cain killed Abel. Cain killed Abel, and I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, obviously, it's been a while, maybe, since some of us read through this somewhat familiar story of the first murder that ever happened here on planet Earth when Cain killed Abel. So it's being referenced here in 1 John 3, verse 12, so let's go back and take a look and do just a little bit of a deep dive back into Genesis chapter 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 8, we read in this passage about how Cain killed Abel. And I just want to say, there is no difference in the fact here, as we contemplate, think through the sacrifices they made, how God uh, approved of one, disapproved of, of the other. There is no difference in the fact that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. One of these jobs was not better than the other. When I was a kid growing up, I thought to myself, when I read that, like, oh, Make sure you do the sheep sacrifice thing, because God doesn't like to garden. He doesn't like grains and grapes. He likes sheep. It's got to be a living sacrifice. That must be what this was about. Cain was supposed to bring a living sacrifice, but he didn't. He just brought out of the fruit of the ground, so God rejected Cain, and he liked Abel. So I always thought that that was what was going on, but I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not what's going on. It doesn't have to do with the sacrifice they brought. It has to do with their hearts. It has to do with their hearts. One of these jobs was not more important than the other. Jesus was appointed, or excuse me, Jesus is pointed to as the Lamb of God in John's gospel, but the New Testament also points to the seed in the parable of the soils as being the word of God. The Bible uses the lamb and uses seed in that parable as both being things of great value. The Bible regularly uses illustrations of spiritual growth as a Christian, both in the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep, as well as in the analogy of a farmer and his crops. So in the context of Genesis 4, it isn't about shepherds being better than farmers or animal sacrifices being better than grain sacrifices. The issue in Genesis 4 is about the heart. And notice how in verse 3 it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say that Cain brought his first fruits. It says, Cain brought an offering of the fruit. This implies that Cain did not bring his very best. He brought his second or his third best. Simply put, he brought the leftovers of his crop. His sacrifice didn't cost that much. And this shows that his love for God was lacking. We understand from Deuteronomy 18 verse 4, The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. So there's this understanding, though it came later, I understand that, from Moses who wrote the Pentateuch, but there was some understanding even early on that God would have revealed sovereignly to both Cain and Abel, just like he sovereignly revealed the gospel to you, that's how you came to faith. That he sovereignly revealed that there's a, there's a type of sacrifice that you make that's worthy. And there's a type of sacrifice that you make that's not worthy. And so if you read in the next verse of Genesis 4 verse 4, remember Cain just brought a sacrifice. But in verse 4 it says, of the firstborn, speaking now about Abel and his sacrifice, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering." So Abel brought his very best to God. Abel made a greater sacrifice because Abel had a greater love. Abel wanted to give give God his very best, his greatest treasure on earth. Because he valued God, and God desires that you give him your very best this morning. He wants the first fruits of your sacrifice, the first fruits of your time, the first fruits of your focus, the first fruit of your efforts, the first fruits of your desires. He wants the first fruits of your heart. Romans 12, one says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what God wants. He wants you. He wants you, all of you. And the reason that God regarded Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's, was because Abel gave of the first fruits with the right heart, with the heart Attitude that honored God. And the reason that this concept of first fruits is so important is because it points to Christ. It points to the gospel. In fact, anytime you hear first fruits, you should just think Jesus. And the reason I'm saying that is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive, but each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so we understand it's all about fruits because fruits points to what God did for us. He sent his very best instead of bringing his first fruits though Cain brought his leftovers and Cain had apparently ignored God's honor and the infinite value of his name Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us that Abel's sacrifice was an acceptable sacrifice to God Hebrews 11:4 by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain Through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so we see Abel represented in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, being a faithful man, a faithful follower who brought by faith the right sacrifice. But Cain had his own self styled religion in which he ignored God's requirements to do what was appropriate as a sacrifice. You don't bring to God what you want to bring. You bring to God what he asks you to bring. And he asks you to bring yourself. He asks you this morning to bring all that you are to him. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would come after me, Luke nine twenty three, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This means that you abandon all of yourself and you do what you do with all of your heart towards the Lord. And so God had disregard for Cain's sacrifice. God doesn't accept you on your terms. He accepts you on his terms. And Cain had a bad attitude about it. He didn't like the fact that God liked Abel's sacrifice and didn't like his sacrifice, and that's why in verse six it says there. Uh, well, even in verse five, uh, Cain was very angry and his face fell. The original language there has to do with his his countenance, his emotion, his demeanor, uh, his guts, everything about him. He's now disappointed, and he's not only disappointed, he's in he's in dismay. And not only that, but he is now uh, just completely going into a very dark corner. And so God approaches him. The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? And so the Lord shows great patience and great love in the sense that he comes to him, even though his countenance had fell, he's disappointed. And in this moment, Cain should have changed and repented. But this was just an outward remorse, that, didn't get, uh, pray, that he didn't get praise for, for doing things his way. And so God warns him about this. He, he warns him about it in verse seven. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You're gonna be tempted at times in the Christian walk and in a Christian body like a church to get angry. You're going to get tempted at times to be jealous and to see others excel and to feel like you're falling behind. And if you're not careful, you could be very disappointed and you could also get angry or totally want to avoid others at all costs, at all costs. And I'm saying to you this morning that you don't want to follow, obviously, in the footsteps of Cain. And few of us think that we ever do. We think, well, I'm not a murderer. That has nothing to do with me. That guy deserved prison, or better yet, to give a life sentence or even capital punishment. That's, what, that's the way we typically think about Cain. And yet this morning we're being reminded in 1 John chapter 3: hey, don't be like Cain. Don't hate your brother, is the context. Be like Christ. Don't be like Cain. Don't hate others. Don't do it. Don't let your differences lead to anger or to disrespect or to resentment or to being legalistic or to being judgmental. I'm warning you this morning that if we're not careful, we can let little things creep into our church and start to divide us to the point that where some people are going to follow the path of Cain and some people are going to follow the path of Christ. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to let those things enter into such a way that it would cause division in God's church. Cain didn't listen to God's warning, and Cain murdered Abel anyway. Cain had already determined to get Abel back. He had already purposed in his heart to get revenge, even though God was kind and gracious to warn him. And here's what we can learn from this story about Cain is this, that anger at God leads to anger at God. At man. When you get mad at God for giving you something you don't feel like you deserve or not awarding you for something you feel like you deserve, you start to get angry at God. And you can't contain just being angry at God. It starts to show in how you treat other people. And so we see here in this context, he was angry at God. He then got angry at his brother to the point that he was willing to commit murder. That's what hate really is. It's murder. Hate leads to the equivalent of murdering others in your mind. And we see that's how low Cain had stooped. In fact, if we move to our second blank there, it says Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. That's what verse 12 says. We should not be like Cain. Back to 1 John now. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Notice that he doesn't say that Cain sinned and then he became a sinner. He sinned because he was a sinner. In other words, he didn't belong to the evil one because of his sin. He belonged to the evil one because he was evil. He was depraved. He had a sinful nature just like you and I. That's how we're born. He was bent towards doing wrong. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us about each one of us before you came to Christ, before you repented, how we were stuck in our depravity. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm just trying to say to you this morning that you're a little bit more like Cain than you thought, you and I are a little bit more like Cain than we ever care to really think about. It. Cain killed Abel. Cain was of the evil one. The next blank says Cain's deeds were evil. His deeds were evil. That's what it tells us there. Not only was he of the evil one; he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. Cain's self-righteous sacrifice in God's sight was evil to not bring your best to God is to bring second best, third best, the leftovers, and in God's mind, that is evil. Cain's resistance to God's warning was also evil. God graciously, kindly pursued him, listened to what I'm saying. God's saying to Cain, be careful here, sin's coming here, you gotta be warned here, and yet Cain rebuffed God's counsel. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 29.10, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. And this is why we should not be like Cain. This is why we're to learn from Cain's negative example. This is why we're to study the Old Testament so that we can learn from the examples of others. God was so kind and merciful in confronting Cain and helping bring about something like the effect of pricking his conscience with the questions that he asked, and yet, Cain rejected this. He didn't want to talk about it. Your jealous, bitter, angry heart can lead to you rebuffing God, turning others away, and it can lead to murder. Cain was stubbornly silent. He premeditated this. Verse 11 uh, tells us, or verse 8 of Genesis says, that he refused uh, to deal with his sin. He rose up, he went out into the field. And we see there what happened. He killed his brother Abel. And so we see here again how anger leads to hate, how hate leads to the death of others. But I also want to remind you this morning that hate, if left unchecked this morning, also leads to the death of yourself. Your next blank. Hate leads to the death of yourself. I'm back now again in First John 3. Look at verses 14 through 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life, Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Not only does hate lead to the murder of others, it leads to the death of yourself. If you do not have love, according to the end of verse 14, then death abides in you. We could say it this way, your next blank. Number one, hate equals death. Hate equals death. You cut off others... And then in a sense, you're demonstrating that what abides in your own heart and soul is death, which is the opposite of life, which means that you're on your way to hell. If you're living in a characteristic hateful mindset, having not been changed by the blood of Christ to redeem you and received his mercy and his grace, those who live a lifestyle of hatred are abiding in death. Hate equals death. This is how Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't abide in love, you're abiding in death. Jesus says this, you have heard it said, Matthew five you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we understand that if we are not putting on love, Christ's love, as a regenerated new believer, only by faith alone and Christ alone, if you're abiding in that kind of hate where you push off God's commands and you push off God's words and you get upset at him, then it leads to your death. It's it's something that just continues to spread into your wicked heart. It's like gangrene. We're depraved, we have a dark heart, this is before you come to Christ, and it begins to permeate all of your body. You can't stop it. And then if left unchecked, number two says, hate equals murder. Hate equals murder, murder. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Very strong language, but we see that's what Jesus already said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. We also read, if you look back over one chapter to first John chapter two, first John chapter two, verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So again, in the context of first John, he's saying, Hey, look, we're doing a few tests to evaluate whether or not you're a true Christian. There's tests about true teaching, false teaching, there's tests about your behavior, and one of your behaviors is love and hate. And if you love and you walk in love and you abide in love, then you're demonstrating the characteristic of a believer, a Christ follower. But if you're not walking in love and you hate your brother and you disregard your brother and you're envious and jealous of your brother, then you're walking in darkness. And those who walk in darkness do not have the light. Sometimes we Even as Christians struggle with this kind of back and forth loving and hating, uh, we get into fights often, and every time we get into a, a fight, a quarrel, an argument, James says it's because of our own sin. James 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel we still act like this at times, even if you've been redeemed positionally, you've been justified by the blood of Christ at times when we're acting in that way as as if we're acting in a murderous way. So hate, if it dominates your life, leads to death, it leads to murder. Number three, hate equals no eternal life. Hate equals no eternal life. Again, the end of verse 15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Revelation one eight. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual and moral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For someone who's a murderer, it leads to hell. For someone who's filled with hate, The New Testament puts that on par with murder. If left unchecked and unrepented of, it leads to hell. And so we see this first man, Cain, is marked by hate. He couldn't get what he wanted. He wasn't applauded for doing things his way. So he took matters into his own hands. He ultimately hated God. He showed this by hating and disobeying God's commandments. And it led to the death of another person and of potentially his own soul. How about you this morning? What, what lessons can you learn from Cain and Abel? Is sin crouching at your door? Maybe it's not hate. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's isolation. Maybe it's independence. We need to be listening to one another We need to be heeding one another's friendship, involvement in a church context. We need to be working through what it is that's going on in our hearts. We need to work together with what's going on in our lives. And one of the best ways to work past your selfishness is to be a part of a small group with other Christians where you can give part of your heart and make it vulnerable to them, they can give part of their heart to you. I'm just saying that you can share beyond just the cursory, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? You've been began to really get into what's going on. I mean, you ever thought about what would have happened if Cain and Abel would have had a real conversation? If Cain would have been like, man, I'm really mad at you. And I'm so upset that God honored yours. He didn't honor mine. What do you think's going on? And Abel could have said, well, hey, Cain, you know, I mean, it's hard to take it from your brother. (laughs) You know what I mean? But he could have been like, hey, man, you're just being prideful. You know, you, you didn't bring to God your very best. Let me encourage you in that. Let me challenge you in that. You know, in a right story that could have turned out a lot better, right? And yet we learn what happened. Cain didn't want to have anything to do with it. He didn't want to even open up with what he was struggling about. He didn't want to talk to God about it. He didn't want to talk to others about it. And it left him in a very bad place. And typically what we see is when quote unquote, Christians who are part of a church begin to pull back and they begin to isolate and they begin to go silent about what's really going on in their life and what they're excited about and what they're struggling with, it typically leads to a very dark place. And our goal is to have small groups set up for just that reason, is that we can say, hey, I know life is tough and we all struggle with sin. And you might be having a real difficulty with one of your teenage kids, or difficulty in your marriage, or difficulty at work, or with just stuff going on in your heart. It's time to talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's be vulnerable and know that we'll be loved and accepted no matter what's going on so that you don't follow down this path of Cain. The second man that this passage talks about in 1 Peter 3 is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ, So we're moving on from Cain now. Let's move on to Christ who is marked with love. Christ is marked with love. A in your outline says, love is commanded of you. Love is commanded of you, back to verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's a command. It's something that God expects of us. Your next blank says, it's always been there. It's always been there. He's saying here in verse 11 that it's been from the beginning. The idea of love has been around as long as God has been around. It's always meant that we would be loving to one another. Love has been there since the very beginning. This really isn't some new concept in the New Testament. You know, sometimes people will try to put a a dichotomy in the character of God and say, well, in the Old Testament, God was a God of holy wrath. And in the New Testament, he's a God of merciful love. And somehow those things don't mix together in the eyes of some. Well, that's a bunch of baloney, right? God's always been a God of love. He's loved from the very beginning. And his love becomes more and more clear throughout the theme of redemption, And in the person of Christ, it's embodied in such a beautiful way that we can hardly stand it when we think about the love of Christ and what it does to us. But God has always been a God of love. He's always commanded that we would love God. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So it's always been there, even in the Pentateuch, in the very first part of the Bible, it's been there. Of course, we know 1 John four sixteen says that God is love. And we know he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like John 13, 34 that we've read already, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so that you are to love one another. And sometimes people ask the question, um, why, does it, why does Jesus say a new commandment I give to you if you just said it was commanded already in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five? Well, I appreciate the MacArthur study note as I was just uh, meditating on it a little bit this week and thinking about it, but he says something to the effect of, 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 of uh, this being a new command. He said it's new. It provides a new standard for at least two reasons. Number one, it was to be a sacrificial love modeled after Christ, So when he says, this is a new commandment I give to you, he's not saying love is brand new, but he's saying now in light of watching and looking at Christ's sacrifice and the fact that he's willing to wash the feet of the disciples, it's almost as if now we're seeing in the new covenant a new example in Christ of what it really looks like to love, to love God and to love others. And so there's a a new, new emphasis, a new standard for two reasons. One, it's sacrificial love modeled after Christ's love. Number two, this kind of love was produced through the new covenant by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I appreciate that emphasis reminding us in 1 John. We understand as the Holy Spirit comes and floods the life of every born-again believer, they have a capacity to love like you didn't have before. I mean, under the new covenant, the gospel in all of its clarity and in all of its power and in all of its transforming work now enables us to love at a new level, in a new way, in a way that is empowering as people see that kind of love on display, they're either going to be drawn to it or they're going to reject it. But here in verse 11, we see this is the kind of love that's been around from the very beginning that we're to love one another. It's always been there. It just keeps getting better. Number two, we also know that love always involves others. Love always involves others. Again, here in verse 11, that we should love one another. This is what John commands in this verse. We're to love one another. This agape love, this this unconditional love, this I'm trying to do what's best for you even at own, my own personal sacrifice kind of love. And guess what? That kind of love has always been here as well, Because it's given in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so we see here the two greatest commandments according to Jesus to love God and love others have been around from the very beginning of the Bible. And they keep getting more visible they're given more space, more example as we're reading now through the New Testament. And I love what he's emphasizing here again. This kind of love, it always involves other people. You can't just sit around and say, I'm a loving person. Did you know I'm so loving? I just love love. I love being loving. I'm a loving person. That's not how it works. Right, you have to love one another, it's something that you do, right? It's a verb. Dear Christian, you can't just sit around and think about better ways to love yourself. The commandment is that you love one another. Love does not exist in a vacuum. It's not a theory. It's something that you do. This kind of love cannot be appropriately practiced in isolation. It needs to be practiced in community. And when I say community, I mean real community. Just walking in here again at 9.30 and attending the service and then leaving at 11 o'clock and then doing it again the next week and the next week and the next week is not an example of you living in community with other Christians. God desires our involvement of loving one another all through the week the ebb and flow of life as we get together and have various ministries so that you can actually put into application what it is that he's teaching us as the second greatest commandment that we would love one another. How else are you going to apply Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves that each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Small group is a place where hopefully you could begin to put that in to practice. And so this is love is not only commanded of us, but it also, your next blank says, love transforms you. It transforms you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is the kind of love that's supposed to transform us. But guess what? Your next blank says the kind of love that the world hates. The kind of love that I'm talking about this morning is actually the kind of love that the world hates. And you may be confused about that and say, well, wait a second. I thought the whole world was supposed to know that we're Christians by our love. Because what goes hand in hand with love is truth. What goes hands in hands with love is God's character in every moral attachment to his character. And so the kind of love that you have as a Christian is, yes, we love the needy. Yes, we love the hurt and the downcast. But we also love that those who are impure and we call them to the purity of Christ. And when you begin to love in that way, the world says, hold on just a second. I can get behind you in helping the homeless, but I cannot get behind you when you confront the homosexual community. But my friends, that is what love is. Love is brought. And love goes into the practical needs of feeding the poor, but love also goes into calling out those who are poor in their sin and calling them to the beauty and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible tells us when you have that kind of love, the world hates you. They only want part of the love. But when you tell them that they can't have sex with a man with a man or a woman with a woman, now they hate you. And they don't want to have anything to do with you. My friends, that's not love. Love is what God says love is. And it ought to transform us. And when you have that kind of love, the world's going to hate you for it. And don't be surprised. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. John 15 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world did not love Christ. Don't expect the world to love you. And don't be surprised about it either. 1 Peter four twelve: do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were to happen to you. We shouldn't be surprised about it. That when we love in the way that God calls us to love, The world's going to hate us. Number two, the kind of love that marks you. This is the kind of love, it it ought to transform us completely, but it's also uh, the kind of love uh, that the world hates, but it's also the kind of love that marks you. That marks you. Verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death to life because we love our brothers. The kind of love that marks you is different than the love that characterizes the world. The love that characterizes the world is mostly selfish looking out for themselves. But you have the kind of love that wants to obey God in all of the counsel of Scripture and to serve others. You know what this does? It exposes the sins of others. It exposes their evil deeds. You have moved from death to life so that you are focused on righteous deeds and on loving one another. Real love for your brother and sister seeks not only to serve them, but to admonish them when needed. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Nobody likes to be corrected, but real friends will correct one another in love because that's living out this type of love that God calls us to. So love is commanded of you. Love transforms you. See in your outline, love was demonstrated for you. You say, well, this is a tall order that you're now calling us to do, not just to be friendly, but to love by pointing out sin and by confronting one another and might have to pay a price for it. Well, here's the greatest example that's demonstrated. Love is demonstrated for you in verse 16. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Here in verse 16, number one, we see a one-time sacrifice. He, referring to Jesus, laid down his life for us. But God showed his love for us. He demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. John 15, 13, no greater love, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did, and this ought to be carried out as well. Your next blank says it's a continual sacrifice. It's a one-time sacrifice when Christ died on the cross, but there's also an ongoing effect of this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The second part of verse 16 is saying, hey, you got to live that out. You gotta put that into practice by loving one another continually. That you keep loving them and you keep loving them even when it's hard. Because that's what God calls us to do: to love one another, Romans 12:10 says, with brotherly affection, that we're to outdo one another in showing honor. Your next blank: love is expected of you. It's expected of you, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This kind of love, it just comes natural to a true born again Christian who understands the gospel and Christ's sacrifice for us. It makes us want to be sacrificial for one another. It's expected of us. Number one, love is giving. Love is giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3, 16. James 2, 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So to say you have faith, which is to say you love God and trust in him for your salvation, but if you don't have works, if you're not walking in obedience to God's word, then your faith is dead because love is giving. Number two, love is doing. Love is doing. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. So if I'm sitting on the couch like a lazy bum, but saying, I love you, honey, then I'm not being a loving husband. I have to get off the couch. Bring the groceries in. Don't just leave them on the counter. Put them in the refrigerator. Take the bags outside. Please recycle if you can. My wife is like, Are you gonna practice that, what you're preaching? Last night I was sitting on the couch a little bit. Come on, it's college football day, kicked off, and I got caught sitting on the couch. I'll do better today, honey. I'll do better today. (laughs) So I'm just saying, love is doing, right? It's putting it into practice. It's putting it into practice. And then lastly, love is truth. Love is truth. The very end of verse 18, again, little children, let us not love the, and talk, um, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." I mentioned this earlier, love is truth. You have to do what is right. And the gospel's uh, emphasis is that in doing what is right, you're sharing Christ with others. that you're, you're looking for opportunities to exalt Christ and to preach the gospel as you're doing what you're doing to help somebody. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So love is truth. This is what God's called us to. This is what I'm hoping that we can learn to apply better in community. Listen to what one commentator uh, said as he summarizes this text. He says this, quote, It may be helpful to summarize the teaching in this passage about hatred and love. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and it's evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. This is what love is. We have the opportunity to be marked by love. Love can be carried out easily in all of life, but I think especially so even in a small group setting. Here's just a couple other musings that I wrote down myself, just kind of thinking about it, putting it together. You can just listen. You know the irony of it all is this, the irony of this passage comparing Cain and Christ, hate and love. The irony of it all is that Cain hated so much that he took someone else's life And then he ended up losing his own. So he hated so much, he had to kill someone else. That did not lead to good things for him, but it ended up to him losing his own life. Christ loved so much that he gave his own life to save someone else's, and in return, he was given back his own. Christ loved so much that he gave his own life to save someone else's, and in return, he was given back through the resurrection. His own life. God didn't like Cain's sacrifice, so Cain sacrificed his brother. God didn't like our efforts either, so he sacrificed his son. That's what God did for us. That's what ought to mark us in the take-home passage slide here. It just says, what are you marked by? Love or hate? Maybe you could just go even deeper than we've been this morning and to contemplate Cain and all the things that we read about him and Christ. All the things that we read about him. Are you more like Cain or more like Christ? And then last, how can you apply what you've learned today in your small group? You ought to apply what you're learning in your family, but we want you to apply it in a small group. So here's the homework uh, assignment. We're actually going to still do the Lord's table. And so after we do the Lord's table and close with a final prayer, there's tables set up out there under the covered patio, where we're inviting you to get involved in a small group. This is how we try to care for our people. This is how we try to get involved as an elder team. There's an elder that's either leading or overseeing every small group. And this gives us an opportunity to flesh out what we've learned this morning about, hey, am I struggling with some areas that lead to hate and death, or am I able to live and walk in love and to serve one another? Small groups typically meet about once every other week. Uh, Small groups also have a missionary that's assigned to them that we try to care for in that small group setting. Um, Small groups are something that we love continuity, meaning if you've been a part of the same small group for a year or two or three or longer, we want to encourage you to enjoy that continuance of family life relationships, but it also gives us an opportunity on a day like today to change small groups. All right, if you're stuck in a bad one, you can get out. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) In love. I'm saying in love, all right? In love. Now, I'm just saying it gives an opportunity. This is a free pass that on this Sunday, if you're like, you know what? We've been enjoying this group for one to five to 10 years. I think we'd like to try a different group. That's fine. All of our small small group leaders are prepared to love you as you exit their group, all right? So we, we get that. Like as a church, it's like, hey, whoever comes, we want to love on you. Whoever decides to transition for whatever reason, we're going to love on you. All right, but we want you to be involved somewhere on a regular basis in a small group. Let me pray for us as we prepare now for the Lord's table. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to just study a little bit um, about the life of Cain, the lessons we can learn about what happened to him, and that we can learn what not to do, that we would not be so self-righteous and so, uh, so jealous and envious of others, that we would not hate others to the point that it might cause some type of harm, division, separation. God, we know that that's, that's a sin that, that, that needs to be confessed. And we want to look to Christ this morning, who's our obvious example to follow, who, who shows us what love is, and that love is helping others with physical and practical needs, but love is also helping others with truth, with prayer, with loving confrontation and admonishment and instruction. We want to be balanced in how we learn to do that, showing mercy. And at the same time, God, we want to just move each other, uh, spur, stir each other up towards love and good deeds. So teach us how to do that. As we prepare our heart even for the Lord's table, we think about the sacrifice of Christ, his love that was poured out for us so that we could be one with him. I pray that as we sing a couple of verses and prepare to take this uh, bread and this cup together, that this would be a time of worship, of sincerity, of confession, and a reminder that we, too, can be one with Christ by his shed blood, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.